Welcome to the number one cookbook podcast, Cookery by the Book, with Susie Chase. She's just a home cook in New York City, sitting at her dining room table, talking to cookbook authors. My name is Anne Peterson, and I'm the author of the book Legendary Dinners, from Grace Kelly to Jackson Pollock. You are the woman behind Salon, a spectacular German lifestyle and design magazine that I definitely want to talk with you about a little later. But for now, it's about legendary dinners. For me, a great dinner party is a break from the ordinary and a chance to connect with what really matters, connection and inspiration. Do you think dinners are going to be different post-pandemic, like Will they be more grand or maybe smaller and more intimate? Uh, yeah, I think post-pandemic parties will definitely be more intensive. And I'm sure that we will all remember how easy it is to have people over to meet, to share a table and have a good evening. And as you said, connection and inspiration, I think we are all interested in other humans. We are social beings and I think there's no substitute to real social contact. What makes a great dinner party? What makes a great dinner party? I think everything is important, like food, location, decoration, fashion, the music. And I think a party is always a big exaggeration. It's an exception. It's a special moment. And it is something that follows very specific rules. Like it is allowed to be overdressed. It is allowed to be drunken. It is allowed to address a stranger. It is allowed to make a speech. It is allowed to take your shoes off and dance on the table because it's a party and we celebrate who we are humans. I'd love to hear about the research process for these 20 menus and how they made the cut. Yeah, the book brings together a number of stories that we have all printed already in Salon. And we tried to choose iconic events, parties that became historic, like the wedding of Grace Kelly or Prince René of Monaco, which is still an inspiration for brides all over the world today, or Truman Capote's spectacular black and white ball, also copied thousands of times or the most luxurious states dinner ever, the feast that Richard Nixon gave to the astronauts after the moon landing, Apollo 11. So I think what we did in the book is we really collected from Coco Chanel to Claude Monet or Tanya Blixen to Thomas Mann, even Goethe's uh, 60s birthday or Napoleon's wedding. So a big and uh, a wide variety of different dinners and events. We, we tell the stories and we cooked all the recipes again. And of course, it's, it's easier if you have the old menu card or the invitation. But some of, of the uh, recipes we did are just interpretations. Because, for example, Coco Chanel at the Côte d'Azur, we had no recipe. But you get hints in different books about her. And we did not cook everything historically correct but we found a modern version for today most of the time. I like that you combined both archival images with contemporary photography of the food, because so often with books like this, you have to look at old grainy photos of the dishes that they served. Yes, I think that's the fun of the book. And and, and this is why it's, it stands also for the whole magazine Salon and all its contributors for the whole team, because it is chefs on the, uh, on the one hand side who, who did the recipes, stylists, the very excellent authors, the photographers. I think the book has so many different levels, the recipes, the, the stories, the food, the tabletops, the porcelain, the flowers. And I think you read about an event and you dive really into it with all the details and all, also all the gossip of the time, which is also very nice, I think. Like 
with Truman Capote's black and white ball and all the hysteria in New York, who was invited and who was not. Yeah, I think it's a coffee table book, an eye candy, but also an historical book and definitely a very good cookbook with reliable, good recipes. With modern dinner parties, um, we could just text people or ask them to join us. But there's something special about receiving a dinner party invitation. In the book, you give examples of wildly creative invitations. Do you have a favorite invitation in the book? Uh, yeah, I really like the Bauhaus invitations because they were a university for graphic design and, and art in, in the in the twenties. And in general, I, I I'm really I love paper invitations, and I think that a dinner party is really an occasion where you can still send paper invitations. I think it's more uncommon to write long letters or even postcards from holidays. But I think dinner invitation is something different, and if it's a really beautiful one, I think. It's nice because people can hang them up and or pin them on their board. And then they know maybe in two weeks time, three weeks time, they will attend this party. I think that's that's very nice. So you just brought up the Bauhaus parties. They were so creative and wild and it looked like a ton of fun. And you have a photo of their sandwiches and it very much fits with the geometric art style. Every recipe in the book is something on whole wheat bread. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I think this whole wheat bread, that is a typical German thing, uh, maybe also from Denmark, but that you just put a lot of different things like carrots and walnuts, pesto, or marinades and beans on bread. In this case, yeah, well, they, they cut it in very geometric forms. And this is also just the fun they make. They also um, bake these gingerbread figures. There was an artist, she was called Gunda Stölzel, and, and she founded those gingerbread figures, the Bauhaus was famous for it. You can still find these real figures in the Bauhaus Archive in Berlin. And I think it's a nice inspiration to create all kind of crazy elephants and uh, whatever you can imagine, not only for Christmas and decorate them also wildly. Marie-Helene de Rothschild believed those who are in small spirit, who are mean, narrow-minded, or timid, should leave entertaining with others. And I agree. I'd love for you to chat a bit about her invitations and her elaborate parties. Yeah, I think she was really legendary and especially her surrealist ball in 1972. So every detail was planned exactly. For example, uh, also for this costume party at her castle was decorated in Alice in Wonderland. So 150 guests were invited, press was not allowed, and everybody had to come in costumes. The special thing about it that you, you were evening dresses, but your head had to be costumed. So it was just the head. So Audrey Hepburn put a birdcage on her head. And the only one who came without a mask was Salvador Dali, because he said his face was disgusting enough. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, so. when I think about her, I think they had more money than they knew what to do with. I think so, too. Yeah. If I think about this costume ball, I sometimes think about the FIT costume ball in, in New York, and uh, but also, all, let's say, about these, I think, very ridiculous 
costumes that, for example, Heidi Klum is wearing for Halloween. Yes. <laughs> um, you know what I mean? Now you can buy everything in plastic. Fantastic, you know. And that was another time. Like she had a real head of a, a gilded gear hat with diamond tears. Um, yeah, diamond tears. Eyes. Yeah. They really had to make an effort like Audrey Hepburn with the birdcage on her head. It's different. And of course, I think she she was she was able to throw a lot of money out of the window. Definitely a, a big windows of a big castle. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I think, yeah, I think it was a lot of uh, fun. Like the guests arrived at the party. They were at both sides of the stairs and on their way to the ballroom. All the whole service people and the staff, they were dressed as cats and they were lying there and sleeping and just... Um, moving around. It had a lot of humor. What's interesting about Madame de Rothschild is also she had stage fright before each of her parties. And also at this time, at this surrealist ball, she just started to relax a little bit when most of the guests were gone, or as she put it, the guests were reduced like a good source. So Prince Philip, the Duke of Edinburgh, who just passed away at the age of 99, was a Greek-Danish-German prince who married Princess Elizabeth, now Queen, November 20th, 1947. I was interested to see that the menu was in French, and on the menu was Filet de Sol Mountbatten. I thought it was curious that they added Philip's last name onto the name of the dish. Do you know why they did that? That was to welcome him in, into the family, because that was a sign of recognition and acceptance for Philip. Um, I mean, he was a very handsome guy, a lot of aristocratic titles, but no money, five years older than her. And I don't think that everybody was so thrilled about this marriage in the beginning, especially in the royal family. This wedding is also interesting because it was two years after the war. They were not sure if, if it was appropriate to have this big wedding. And that's also why the menu was quite simple, just three dishes, fish, poultry, and then ice cream. And it was in French, but why? Well, because French is the preferred language of gourmets, uh, and that even at Buckingham Palace. Jackson Pollock and Lee Krasner lived the bohemian life in my neighborhood in Greenwich Village. It was the hub of the city's artist colony, and that's one of the reasons why we live in this neighborhood today. It's retained much of its arty residence and artistic feel. So they left Manhattan for a big place in the Hamptons where they could host dinner parties for the movers and shakers of the New York City art scene. His art was so complicated and abstract, but I found it interesting that they entertained with simple dishes like borscht and roast chicken stuffed with herbs. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I think both loved good, simple food, but there were no good cooks. And their apartment in Manhattan even had no kitchen. And when they moved to the countryside in 1945, they bought the house and, and built a kitchen and started to host dinners, also to not lose the contact to the Manhattan's Bohemian Society. And Krasner learned to cook, Pollock took charge of the baking, and I think together they were great hosts. And yeah, as a borscht, she seems to be something that they have cooked very often because Krasner, she's a child of Russian Jewish immigrants. 
Coco Chanel, whom I would assume would host elaborate high-style dinner parties, was very toned down. Dress was informal, as were the meals. Lunch was served buffet-style, with food service and antique silver dishes from England on a long table at the end of the dining room, like salad niçoise with tuna steaks and fried chicken with asparagus, artichokes, and fava beans, and crispy fans of grapefruit and pine nuts. The juxtaposition of fancy fashion and informal meals intrigues me. I think the interesting thing about Coco Chanel is actually at which state of her life she was when we did this menu. Because she just turned 40 years and she met uh, the Duke of Westminster. And the Duke of Westminster was at that time the richest man of Great Britain. And she met him on his big sailing ship. And so in this period of her life, she bought a piece of land at the Côte d'Azur and had the La Pausa Villa built on it. And this became a swanky, relaxed retreat for herself and all her friends and for her lover, the Duke of Westminster. There was not a strict menu. Guests served themselves from a large buffet, eating as much as they wanted or as little. And I I think, I guess, Coco Chanel probably did not eat a lot. (laughs) And that was also... Something the buffet style for her was also a possibility to to be not forced to eat so much because you cannot see how much she would eat. That's interesting. Huh. That's, for example, one of the menus that we had no exact menu card for that. And we wanted to do a dinner with Coco Chanel and contacted the Chanel archive in Paris and... um, we also thought about maybe do something with the Ritz in Paris, what we didn't do, because that is the period where she was really collaborating with the Nazis. And it was also the time when in Paris, a lot of people, they were really starving. And I think in the Ritz, they were still partying with champagne and had everything. So that is all. It's not the nice part of Coco Chanel. So this is a little earlier. You're the editor-in-chief of Salon, a beautiful lifestyle magazine. And I collect vintage interior design coffee table books and must have over 50 in my small collection here in my small New York City apartment. I was talking to India Hicks on this podcast about her brother Ashley, who you mentioned on your Instagram, I think yesterday or the day before. Yes, yes. They're related to Prince Philip. So he got me through the pandemic lockdown with his wonderful Instagram lives of him flipping through interior design books discussing the background and history of interiors. What are some interior design styles or interior designers that influence you? I also left Beata Heumann. I don't know if you know her. She just released the book, Every Room Should Sing. No, She's but I'm going to look it up. Yeah, you will love it. And uh, in the last issue, we did a, a, a big story with Francois Allard, who is a very famous European interior photographer. And I think another favorite book that I recently bought is The Lives of Others by Simon Watson. That's also an interior photographer that I really like. What's your favorite style of interior design? Very eclectic. So it's a mix of old and new and very colorful. Um, Yeah, to use a lot of color, to use even wallpaper. And I think it's important to have some old furniture because it gives the room a soul and makes it warmer, gives more atmosphere. Yeah, I think that that's my style. Now for my segment called Last Night's Dinner, where I ask you what you had last night for dinner. 
Yeah, I had asparagus with butter sauce and caramelized breadcrumbs and chopped eggs and that all together with potatoes and ham, which is typical German. <laughs> Where can we find you on the web and social media? On Instagram, you will find Salon at Salon underscore magazine, but without an E at the end because it's German. And you find myself at Anne underscore Peterson. I'm thrilled to celebrate the return of the dinner party with this book. Thank you so much, Anne, for coming on Cookery by the Book podcast. Thank you, Susie, for having me. It was great fun. Subscribe over on cookerybythebook.com. And thanks for listening to the number one cookbook podcast, Cookery by the Book. <laughs>